there. It's me, Editing Adam. It's been a minute since we've talked. Uh, the last time I had to pop in was in the middle of last season where we really fucked up the audio because I forgot to plug in the microphone. This time I just wanted to give a quick disclaimer that's a little bit different than the last time. As you guys know that while Taryn and I are social distancing, we're continuing to record and publish episodes of Basic Snitches. What we did this last recording session, which was for chapters five and chapter six, is we used an app called Anchor. Essentially, Tara and I both had to call into a shared server, and that server would record us, and then we would have to export the data. Now, as a backup, because I wasn't quite sure how it would all work, I would have to convert the file, and based on file size, maybe it wouldn't have been small enough for my conversion system. I decided to also record the episode on my mic from my phone into Audacity. So when everything came out in the wash, the anchor file worked out great. The only thing is my voice was a little bit low and hers was a lot louder than mine. On the flip side, obviously when I recorded it from my microphone, my voice was crystal clear, but Tara's was almost completely silent and very hard to understand. Comparing the two audio qualities, I ended up going with the Anchor file. However, because I was so quiet, every time I speak, I have to amplify my voice in audacity. There are times when I will be talking and then Tara will start talking, and so you'll hear my voice kind of go down or vice versa. There are times when I had to also amplify Tara's voice so that you could hear. So it's gonna be a little bit of a roller coaster. I'm so sorry about that. This episode and the next. Just know that once this all ends, and when Tara and I can see each other again, we're going to go back to recording together. Our sound quality is going to be a lot better unless I forget to, you know, plug in the microphone. The next time we record, which will probably still be during this quarantine, we just have to be more cognizant of not talking over each other, which is a common problem we have and even more difficult when we're not next to each other and both of us have drunk a bottle of wine or in this case, I drank like a half a bottle and she drank two. Anyways, enjoy this episode. Guys, we're doing this. Happy coronavirus. Oh my God. Don't say thank you like that. Well, we're going to see how this goes. Recording 22 miles away from each other or something like that. Exactly. I don't know how well you guys are going to be able to hear this, but... Trying. We are trying. So yeah, we hope that you are all social distancing and that you're not listening to this in your car or at the office or anything like that. Unless you are an essential worker. That's right. Have to go to the office. I don't like the term essential worker. It makes it sound like other people are not important. It really does. I don't know what else you're supposed to call them though. So whatever. My opinion doesn't matter. I mean, I have been working from home. This is what, day, oh, I've lost count, 17? I don't know. I don't work from home. And and that includes weekends. So I've only really left the house for like essential reasons. But I work all digitally. So I've been able to do everything kind of uninterrupted, which is very... I'm glad. And Tara, you are sort of essential, aren't you? I mean, essential is an interesting word. That's why I keep saying I think it's weird because like... I basically just answer phones because someone has to, but I do work in healthcare. So there's not really an option for me to do that from home. 
and there's not really an option for no one to answer the phones. So, so I just go to work and Friday I sat there by myself. It was very weird. <laughs> and I was like, I've been in this office for 10 minutes because I just switched jobs. I got moved to a different office. And so I don't actually know what I'm doing. So yeah, I do a lot of asking questions to the doctor who's wonderful. He answers all my questions at least. So We've had a couple people start at my office during this whole thing. And I'm like, I cannot imagine what that's like. Like if they have to go in and, you know, do all their paperwork and everything. And then it's like, okay, well, go work from home now. You know? Right. We'll see what happens. It's strange times. But I mean, ultimately, the thing to remember is that it's temporary and things will go back to some sort of normalcy, whether it's the new normal or... Right. Whatever. That's why we couldn't not keep recording. I think it was important for us to do a thing that does feel normal and doing it as best we can under the circumstances. When everything else is canceled, we ain't canceling basic snitches. So (laughs) that's right. We know cancel basic snitches. And we are also both drinking wine. Yes, I'm drinking Chardonnay. I'm drinking the last bottle of banana wine. Well, that's good. <laughs> I wanted to get out the shitty stuff first yeah. because I'm I'm starting to run out of things. So that's all you, a lot of you people went out and got toilet paper. You guys were wrong. Wine. Come oh, on. Wine. I know. I think we only have like four bottles of wine left. It's a problem. Speaking of wine, I'm going to go put my Chardonnay in the fridge so it's chilled. Excellent. I don't care about chilling mine because it's banana wine. <laughs> So do you want to do this thing where we talk about this book? Oh, yes. We are reading The Prisoner of Azkaban. And today we are covering chapter five. Five? The Dementor. Dementor. Do you want to know who won and lost chapter four? Sure. Okay, chapter four. The losers, it's two. Fred and George. I have a feeling that you might give it to I know I love them so much, but I I think the bullying is a little much. The winner of the chapter is Hermione. She wins because she adopts Crookshanks, who's been there forever, and loves Crookshanks even if he seems to be not an ideal pet right away. She about to know he's the fucking best. Yes. Hermione's first win of the book. Yeah. She's going to win a lot. That's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, it's our first time seeing her. (laughs) She literally just showed up in this chapter, but I wrote you a summary thing for chapter five, if you want to read it. Okay. What if I don't want to read it? Oh, okay. (laughs) So moving on to our discussion of the book. Just kidding. Here we go. Chapter five, The Dementor. It's time to go to Hogwarts, finally. Percy and Ron are still fighting. Everything is crazy because how do you keep track of seven children all going to school? They all get to King's Cross, and this time everyone makes it through the barrier to platform nine and three quarters. Probably because the adults are actually paying attention to children this time, but what do I know? Anyway, Mr. Weasley pulls Harry aside and tries to tell him about how Sirius Black probably wants to murder him, but Harry admits he's a nosy bitch and already heard them talking about it. Then Harry gets on the train, and he and Ron and Hermione can't find a train car to themselves, so they sit with a sleeping guy who turns out to be Professor Lupin. Harry tells them about what he overheard the night before. Then the trip to Hogwarts continues as expected. Ron and Hermione fight, Trolley Witch brings snacks, Malfoy stops by Brolaine insult. Basically nothing happens on this train ride. Oh, wait. Except that scary horror movie scene where a literal nightmare comes into the train compartment and it's so fucking scary that Harry literally passes out. 
So we meet a Dementor as Professor Lupin, who has finally awoken from his apparent coma in the corner of the car, identifies the hooded figure. Super terrifying. Then Lupin hands out chocolate, and the children, now including Ginny and Neville, who had both wandered into their car in the Dementor caused darkness, get ready to get off the train as they are about to get to Hogsmeade. It's raining and freezing, which feels appropriate after the visit from the Dementor on the train. They then get into carriages that take them to Hogwarts, and Harry and Hermione get pulled out of the group by McGuff, who shoes away Ron and breaks up the trio. She takes them to her office, where Quen Pomfrey is waiting to check on Harry. After he tells everyone he's fine for the 56th time, McGuff makes him wait outside while she chats with Hermione, and then they all go down to the feast where they see Flitwick putting away the sorting hat. Dumbledore tells the students that Dementors will be hanging out at Hogwarts and won't be that be fucking fun. Then he introduces Professor Lupin, who gets to take over Defense Against Dark Arts classes. Then he tells everyone that Hagrid is going to be teaching care of magical creatures where nothing bad will ever happen. It will be very safe for children to be taught by someone who isn't even allowed to have a wand, but can be in charge of dangerous creatures. Super great, can't wait. But the trio are excited for Hagrid because they love him and they know this will make him happy. So they tell him congrats after dinner. Then everyone gets sent to their dorms, and we learn, to nobody's surprise, that Neville Longbottom is bad at remembering new passwords because plot device for later in the book. And the chapter ends with Harry feeling like he's home. Yay. 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 <laughs> we basically open where the last chapter ended, and this is where we get that conversation between Arthur and Harry. Yes. Did you notice that Arthur is basically up in Harry's business until he gets on the fucking train? He does not leave Harry yes. at all. Yeah, I actually really like that note that you put in your summary about, oh, wow, everybody actually made it onto the train platform (laughs) this time. Because it's true. I mean, I'm finding out all these differences between, or not necessarily differences, but interesting mirror images of how Chamber of Secrets was. This happened in that book, so now it's the opposite in this book. Like, last time they just did not give a fuck about making sure that they got into the platform safely, and then that happens. I have more on that shortly, too, but, oh, yeah. but that's one instance of it that I did not pick up on. I will say I love that Mrs. Weasley, like, kisses all the children goodbye, and Harry's embarrassed, but he's also pleased. It's very cute. Yeah, a great mom moment from Gwen, Molly. And then they go to the compartment... And they're like, who's this guy? Whatever. Let's talk. Yeah. What if he was not sleeping? What if he's faking it? So I have several questions (laughs) because first of all, that's a good point. But like, why would he be faking it? Yeah, right. I don't think he is because he's like a tired bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because he's been up in the middle of the night a lot. (laughs) Just like us. Just like Uh, us. But also, why is he on the train to begin with? Wouldn't you think that the professors would need to get there ahead of time? Well, they were already been there. There's like speculation in the narrative that, as far as they know, professors don't ride the train. And honestly, I'm kind of like, I wish that adults were on the train. And I wonder if Dumbledore wanted him to ride the train. Or, all the spoilers because Lupin's a werewolf, um, maybe it was like a fucking full moon. He couldn't get to Hogwarts any sooner because he had to go do mm-hmm. hide from people shit. And then That's possible. literally like the only other option was for him to ride the train because he does look completely exhausted and haggard and 
like you said, he, he's up a lot, so maybe he needs to sleep more. Haggard wasn't on the train. We're talking about <laughs> Professor Luke. I said he's haggard. I know. I'm trying to make a joke. I'm bad at jokes. They know. Another thing that I think this, that it goes back to, though, is just the way that Harry's being approached by everyone in mm-hmm. this completely protective way. The Weasleys did it. Perhaps actually having a professor on there, you know, at least there's some sort of adult, like you said. And I mean, if he wasn't there, then nobody would have known how to handle this Dementor incident either. I like to think that he's there on purpose. For whatever purpose that is, I don't know. Yeah. I guess when I read it through, it seemed like for whatever reason, he had no choice. But maybe it is a little bit more incidental than I originally thought. I mean, who knows, but, you know. Yeah. Their conversation about Sirius Black, can we talk about that really quick? I just want to make the comment that in the same conversation where they're talking on the train, they're talking about how, well, Harry's just told them that Sirius Black is probably trying to kill him, and Hermione says the very helpful, you'll have to be really careful, which, you know, is very helpful, I think, not really. But they're also literally, like, paragraphs later, they talk about the Shrieking Shack for the first time. Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating because they're they're talking about it with Lupin in the car in the same like conversation or the next conversation after talking about Sirius Black. I think that that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then like when Ron is all like, "Well, Sirius Black wouldn't hurt Harry if he's with us," and Hermione's like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Yeah. Well, it's one of those other things. Like what I wrote down is, "I don't go looking for trouble; trouble finds me." And I'm like, oh, okay, really? What happened during that Norbert chapter and the Aragog chapter, etc.? You know? I like, mean, but that's really the truth. And those are like Harry just kind of being like, yeah, this is going to be trouble, but there's a purpose behind it. Like, he's not like the Marauders, but like, they kind of were around just to cause trouble. And every time Harry's out of bed at night when he's not supposed to be in shit, he's doing it to do something for someone else. Well, yeah, but it's still finding trouble. (laughs) I mean, okay, they're kids. I get it. We've talked about this stuff already. But, like, when you get out of bed to go take a dragon's egg up to one of the towers in the middle of the night, what do you think is going to happen if it doesn't go to plan? So, I mean, it really is still him going out and finding it. It's circumstantial. And I think the other thing is how both of them really react to Black. And, I mean, Hermione is very intelligent. Ron is from a pure blood family. So of course they know. There's two different things that I thought about this. In the next chapter, there's a conversation about something else. Of course, we'll get more into it then. I don't think we necessarily need to talk about it now. But there is this element that's coming up where Ron knows what it is and Hermione brushes it off. And there's a reason why. But it's interesting because in this situation, they're both on the same page. And the other thing is... I wonder to what extent they both know why Harry is being protected. Because if they knew, wouldn't you tell him? So I don't think that they do know. I don't think that they know. Because in this circumstance, when Ron is talking about breaking out of Azkaban and how it's never happened, and Hermione obviously knows all about Azkaban because she's Hermione, I think it's more telling coming from Ron because Ron has lived in this world And he talks about how Arthur had gone once to Azkaban and had come home and felt shitty and stuff like that. Like Hermione, yeah, I trust her to give us all the information. But where Ron is feeling scared, like it comes from a place of a history of knowledge versus Hermione's thirst for knowledge. 
Like Hermione would just know everything and Ron is like, but I actually saw my dad come home from Azkaban feeling this way, yeah. you know, yeah. or is it Ron or Fred or George who says it either way, just like, cause they have the same reaction and their frame of reference is so different. I think Harry just is adverse to anyone making a big deal out of everything involving him already. He's like, oh, clearly they're more terrified than I am. It's because Harry, you would rather not have this be about you, <laughs> I think is really what I feel from Harry at this point. And as the chapter progresses, you definitely feel the, I don't want this to be about me from him. Yeah, yeah. That makes some sense there. Now, there's some other things other than this conversation about Black that happen in the car. That is interesting. Well, you touched on one already. And that's that they do start talking about Hogsmeade and they talk about the Shrieking Shack. And they mention Honeydukes, which is amazing. I wonder if they deliver because I could sure use some of that right now. Mm-mm. And then the other two things during specific moments, the sneakoscope goes off. And of course, the first time it happened, we were kind of talking about it being Scabbers. But I'm starting to think, okay, maybe it is. Because like, if Scabbers is always around, then why isn't it going off constantly? And the times that it mentions is there's one time in the compartment when they're talking about Lupin. And it makes it seem like Lupin is not untrustworthy unless he's a I think that, yeah. But then the other one is he mentions that it goes off when he's tying a package oh, with- to Errol. And then it makes it seem like it's Ron because Ron shouldn't be using Errol to deliver shit. I think that the introduction of the sneakoscope as kind of a piece of magic that's not necessarily reliable is interesting here. That's how it's set up. Mm-hmm. That Hermione is even like, are you doing something you shouldn't have been doing? And Ron's like, oh, haha, yeah, I was doing this thing. But now that it's like randomly going off in the car and Ron's like, oh, well, it's cheap, you know, whatever. I think that it's being set up to be this unreliable piece of magic, which makes it even more interesting. Obviously, we know the scabbers bit. It makes it more interesting, though, when you think about how often we talk about unprecise magic in this book. We're introduced a lot of different things that all kind of intertwine. The time turner, the sneakoscope, and of course, in the next chapter, divination. And that always being something that Hermione talks about being an unprecise branch yeah. of magic. And, and McGuck. So, of course, then this Dementor moment happens. Are they allowed to use magic on the Hogwarts Express? I mean, they must. Here's why I'm asking. Because it's always been unclear. And in this moment, it goes dark. Everyone's asking all these questions. Ginny and Neville stumble into the compartment. Lupin has not awakened from his coma yet. No one is fucking doing Lumos. Mm -hmm. the only person who's doing magic in this whole thing is fucking Lupin. So then I'm like, does that mean that they're not allowed to do magic on the train? I don't know. I think it's very unclear. Okay, there's a couple things that I think of. It's chaos. I mean, this is when Neville and Ginny decide to come in, and it's very interesting because only Luna is missing when you think about it. Oh. So this is one of the, like, first times when it's kind of all five together. It's also very unexpected. The train is stopping. All the lights go out. I think to an extent it could maybe be panicking because I'm sure we've talked about this before, especially near the beginning with Ron trying to change the color of that bitch and things like that. In this moment for me, I would just, and it's not because I'm like, I can't believe she didn't do this. Because, you know, she is entitled to her fear and her unease. But this is a moment where Hermione would be like, okay, guys, fucking calm down. Lumos, let's figure this out. 
That's why I wonder if they're actually not allowed. I don't know. I'm inclined to think that they can. I really do. And I think this is just like a moment of panicking. And like, thank God, like I said, that Lupin was there. Lupin is great. Can we talk about though, how's everyone else on the train doing? These five children all got chocolate. Well, that's because the Dementor went into their thing because the Dementor was going after the part of Voldemort stuck in Harry. Do you think that? I don't know that I think that. I have always thought that, yeah. Really? Okay. Otherwise, why? The Dementors are looking for Sirius Black. They would would look in all the train cars. Based on their appearance and their actions and everything, I've always kind of thought that they were just kind of able to sense... And this thing is going for Harry. Why is this happening? And that's I mean, another thing for it, me. It definitely is attracted to Harry. Yes. Like in this incident, it feels like the Ministry of Magic just decided, oh, hey, well, the best thing that we can do is let the guards out to go find Sirius Black. But they don't know the full story. Like, I guess that's what I'm more inclined to think. Because otherwise, there's no point in doing that when they're endangering all these children. And I mean, that's clearly why the Dementors are coming on the train, I think. is like, okay, well, here's a check just to make sure that everything's fine so that we can get Harry to schools and Sirius Black is after Harry. And then, of course... The irony of that is that it backfires on them and the Dementors go after Harry. That's been my whole thing this entire time. Because otherwise, this really is very random. I mean, I don't think that it's very random that the Dementors go after Harry. I think that Lupin covers it really well later on in the book. That Harry has a very, very dark... I don't think that it's just Voldemort. You know, I think that it's just... Harry and he has this like inner despair that the Dementors are attracted to. In this chapter, you notice that like Ginny does not speak again. I think that the Dementor is probably attracted to her inner fragileness. And to me, that makes me go, they are not the only children on the train who have some kind of trauma. It doesn't make sense to me that the Dementors would just go into that compartment. I feel like that they would be all up and down the train. And now I feel bad for every student who didn't get to have a professor taking care of them. Well, if they're able to sense this, because I think that's a good point that is probably inner despair, but then maybe it's a little bit of both because if that's their main sensor is inner despair, and I think that is perhaps just what they're attracted to. Yeah. Then how are they catching people? Like, I guess I can't imagine that they'd be able to send Sirius Black based on that alone, you know? So I think it might be even be a combination. Here's the other thing. Like, if that's the case, that makes this whole thing even worse, that these Dementors really are targeting people who aren't the correct person that they have to be after. I think that's also why it made more sense to me that Harry specifically was a target of this and regarding Ginny first of all Ginny isn't a chatterbox yet anyways and this is a terrifying moment too (laughs) it's really easy to not want to talk during that moment I don't think that the Dementor is targeting Harry I think it's attractive to him the movie makes it look like the Dementor is trying to administer the kiss and that's not what happens it it's in the doorway and Harry literally like passes out because it the despair is so heavy the dementors aren't attacking the students they're just there because they talk about it later on in the 
book about when the Dementor actually does try to kiss him. So I don't think the Dementor is attacking Harry. It's just drawn to Harry. Yeah. Well, now here's the other thing, though, because <laughs> going back to the, the piece of Voldemort in him, I think the reason of him hearing that scream, which is his mother, evoking that memory and stuff is also somewhat connected to what's in his head. Now, yes, it's a terrible memory, too, that it's evoking, but I still think that there is some sort of connection between those. And just, in general, the Ministry needs to have better control of these guards. <laughs> the truest statement ever. I mean, we're going to end up talking about Ministry pra practices more and more throughout this series. Yeah. Every single thing now that we keep seeing, whether it's the trackability of magic or trackability of their prison guards and stuff is like not great. Then of course this is where Lupin gives them chocolate. Because he's great. Please please question have chocolate. Oh uh, yeah. Obviously. <laughs> he should be the astronomy professor. Sorry, Sinastra, you're gonna have to do He should be the everything professor because he's the fucking greatest. He really is great. I'm excited to see more and more of him because okay. up to this point, even at the end of next chapter and that's going to end soon, obviously. We haven't seen a lot of Lupin. So there's still this kind of, like, curiosity, I think, behind him. Oh, yeah. Um, I do want to say that I appreciate the fact that Hermione does go to, like, comfort Ginny. And I wish that it were kind of normalized, like, human contact as a comfort tool between these children. Just let Hermione hug the boys. I really appreciated that little moment. But yeah. I wish it had not been, oh, well, we're just going to have the girls hug each other because that's what girls do yeah i don't know that's just the thing that, that bothers me just personally has nothing to do with the story i do want to make the comment that it, it, harry is like he didn't ask how lupin knew his name you're fucking harry potter exactly well and then that goes back to why lupin was there maybe they kind of figured okay this is where harry's gonna end up right because he was friends with james too like that's going to be way clearer later down the road. Like, that is actually probably the real reason why he knows Harry. Maybe he's also Harry Potter. Like, everyone knows his name. Sorry, Harry. I know you don't want to be the center of attention, but here we are. Then they get to the school. Two things right here that I thought were really interesting. This is the first indication. It doesn't mention them, obviously, yet. But the first indication of Thestrals. Yes. Horseless carriages. Yes. After the first year, we don't really necessarily hear how they get up there because of the car incident. Of course, we know about the boats in the first year. That is explained. So I think it's interesting that it's this early. The other thing, this kind of goes back to what you were saying about Mr. and Mrs. Weasley chaperoning everybody through the wall. I didn't say this earlier, but it could have been them also learning their lesson. Like, well, we know what happened last year. No kidding. Maybe they're going to go try to get one of those ministry cars this year. And then Arthur's really going to be fucked. But so that was one thing that was kind of like opposite. The thing that I also really like, and I touched on it in one of our recent episodes too, about how there's more focus on Hermione in this book in comparison to Ron in the last one. At the beginning of the last book, once they got to Hogwarts, it was Ron and Harry in a professor's office and they missed the feast. This time it's Hermione and Harry in a professor's office and they, they don't miss the feast, they miss the sorting. Yeah. So I think those little differences are really cool to notice and kind of put a spotlight on JK's storytelling process. I do like how McGonagall's like, come with me. And Ron just is like, me too. And he's, she's like, no, bitch. Go on, Ron. She's like, <laughs> I'll let you guys be a trio in the past, but not now. I, I got some secret shit that I need to talk to Hermione about. 
when they're in McGonagall's office, I love that Madame Pomfrey comes in. I'm like, maybe don't call the child delicate in front of him. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's even like, of course you're not. <laughs> That's what I like about her. Is she's great. She administers the care over these students while also having a little bit of like a toughness to her. Yeah, her and McGonagall both approve of Lupin and like their commentary there. I love this scene in McGonagall's office. So then when they do get to the feast, Dumble is talking about announcements for the first of the year, all of that stuff. He introduces Lupin and Hagrid. The other thing he alludes to, which is one of those things similar to, you won't go looking for him, will you? That whole thing. Yeah. He mentions invisibility cloaks. Like, okay, okay, you know that's going to happen. Like, Here's the thing. Harry never goes looking for Sirius Black. I feel like had the school year been longer, Harry would have gotten to the point where he would have gone looking for Sirius instead of how it unfolds. I love that he mentions Invisibility Cloak because you know everyone expects Harry to be this irrational little bitch. And I mean, he doesn't go looking for Sirius Black. He goes looking for Honey Dukes because he wants to please question have a chocolate. Right? Just like Lupin gave him. So he still uses it. And people are telling him not to go out. Yeah, fucking children. And the only other thing that I actually have here is that little moment between Snape and Lupin where he has like look of complete loathing on his face. I have comments. What are your comments on that? Well, simply that it's interesting to kind of like plant that seed here. He probably had that look on his face when Lockhart was announced. And we all see how Lockhart turned out. So I wonder if at first what readers are thinking if they're reading this for the first time. Oh, here we go. Another douchebag, dark arts professor. And oh, wait, Snape also kind of knew the bullshit behind Quirrell and Lockhart. This is something that's a little bit different that I think is really nice. That's an interesting thought because I hadn't thought of it that way. I think that setting up Snape in the I'm mad that I'm not the defense against the dark arts Professor, that whole, like, scenario is obviously just, like, set up for each book. Also, I'm just tired of Snape behaving like a child. And in this instance, it feels even more childish because later on you learn the history between Snape and Lupin and how Snape is just so set on holding a grudge and so set on Mm -hmm. being angry instead of trying to be progressive. We learn later that Lupin is part of a group of boys who bullied Snape in school. That is not forgivable, it's not okay, whatever. But at the same time, I don't know, I get really frustrated with the lack of maturity in Snape's regard. He's just so immature. You know, he would rather sit there and hold a grudge. Like this book, I'm really interested to watch that from this angle, like now that we're coming at it from knowing the rest of the story following Snape this early on. And I don't think that I ever noticed really in this way, the look that Snape gives Lupin in this more than how Harry is like, oh, he just doesn't like him because he's the new defense against the dark arts professor. You said something about like, oh, maybe it's more childish. I think definitively it's more childish. Well, yes, it is. Because in the past, it's just that he wanted the position and here, I mean, you already said it, he holds a grudge. So like clearly that relationship between Lupin and Snape brings out a little bit more of a bad side about Snape. Sometimes you are less quick to be forgiving on Snape, which is fine. Like everybody has their different approach to each character. There are some times where I kind of look at it as like, okay, maybe this is where he's coming at. But like in this instance, yeah, I think it's pretty bad. The fact that he can't even like hide that. Like you're in front of the whole student body. You should be professional here. That's really what it is. Because everyone, Percy says it in the first book. 
everyone knows this is the job he wants. So you're going to behave like that in front of everyone. I do love Ron's response to Hagrid being named Caravagatory Creatures, where he's just like, yeah, who would have given us a biting book? Like, I love that Ron understands Hagrid. Oh, and Ron's got some great one-liners in this book. Do you have anything else on the book? No, just that I love that, that at the end of the chapter, Harry is home and it makes me happy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, the other thing that we did not mention, and I didn't have it in my notes, is the little moment where Neville forgets the password again. Yes, I put it in my summary, but I didn't talk about it. But I want to mention that because when we get to the movie, I have to talk about the fat lady. So we'll talk about the movie in a second. But first, fuck, Mary kill. Oh, shit. There wasn't exactly like a grouping that fit well necessarily with this chapter. This is where we meet Lupin, so I'm going to do the three Defense Against the Dark Arts professors that we know so far. Buck, Mary, kill Quirrell, Lockhart, Lupin. Well, I'm going to kill Lockhart. <laughs> I'm going to fuck Quirrell. Why not? And I'm going to marry Lupin. That's probably my answer, too. <laughs> if you fuck Quirrell, I mean, he got two mouths. I don't necessarily know how beneficial that is because they're on the opposite side of his head. But... <laughs> That'd be interesting. I'm just saying. Maybe. I mean, if you've got two dicks on the opposite side of your body, then perfect. <laughs> perfect fucking partner. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> There's a pun somewhere about having secrets hidden under his head. I don't know what it is, though. I really don't. So... Yeah, I think I probably agree. I think I'm gonna... Marrying Lupin is obvious. And y'all know how much I hate Lockhart. There's no way that I'm gonna do nothing with him. He would probably be the easier one, like, physically to fuck. Lockhart is a fuck boy. Right. If the choice was Kenneth Branagh, I'd be like, yeah, I'm fucking him. But it's Lockhart. Um, it's Lockhart. There's no way. That personality is too terrible. No, he's the worst. And I mean... Even though it's not the greatest substance, you can tell that Quirrell has a little bit more substance. So, there's that. Right, okay. Let's, let's get out of this. Let's talk about the movie. Okay. So the first part of the movie is something that we talked about in the last episode, and that was this conversation between Harry and Arthur. And I fucking adore this scene. One thing that we talked about in the last episode was how there's so much stuff going in the background. There is this guy like balancing the plates at first and then Quen Molly comes in and he does she does the mom thing that we talked about already. Arthur at that point grabs Harry and is like I need to talk to you for a minute and they have this conversation. And if you actually watch and listen and everything I almost don't even know where to start. Are you talking about the serious black poster that is like the foreground of that theme? So there's that. But if you also even think about it, first he like separates him from everybody. And then at one point they're behind that pillar next to that serious black poster. And this guy in a bowler hat comes over and sits down right there. And that is like Arthur's cue to then take him into an even darker area. And it's almost like he's moving more and more into darkness. And I cannot take um, credit for that. I saw that on a documentary or something in the past. And it gave me so much respect for that scene. Because, of course, we do have a different director now. But that I really love. But then, even, like, you can hear, like, Hermione and Crookshanks in the background. And there's one point where Percy is getting some 
sort of beverage out of a floating kettle and you can even hear it pouring into his cup the richness and amount of stuff in this scene both like literally and figuratively is just so fucking good i love that you point that out as an adaptation i have a lot of issues with this movie but as a movie, I think it's the best one in the entire series. Yeah. And part of it is that, is all the little stuff that you're pointing out there. Even though it's not at all how it happens in the book and, and all of that. Like this scene is really good way of showing just how this director sees this story and how on top of everything, these type of things seem like it's not like a regular movie where you're following one little thing at a time, which these books are very convoluted. These storylines are very complex. This is such a great way to show the complexity without actually taking away from what we're supposed to be paying attention to, but also without ignoring the importance of the rest of the world existing around it. I love it so much. It's really, really good. I agree with you that they really do cut out a lot. And I think to an extent so far, it's been okay. The way that it's presented and goddamn the cinematography. I think- a Oh my God, yes, thank you. I think a lot of it, I noticed more in the movie portion for the next chapter. But even this one too, like once we actually get to Hogwarts, which we're not there yet in this discussion, but it is incredibly well done. Can I just say that, and this is hard coming from me, I think that this movie has Daniel Radcliffe's worst acting moments in the series. Hmm. I don't think some of his greatest to this day, but he has some really rough moments in this movie. That being said, in this scene, literally everyone is fantastic. I love how they start this scene off, like when they're on the train with them talking about Sirius. They're playing up Ron and his Rupert Grant's ability to just deliver a line with that sarcasm. The way that he responds with the, thanks Ron, like is one of my favorite things in the entire movie. But it's interesting how the movie goes or how that scene goes from you're like amused by the moment to complete terror the choice to make the window freeze and that bottle of water freeze and everything i love that we do miss a lot of the conversation about hogsmeade but i mean we get there in a more visual way later we also miss jenny and neville which i'm okay with i love them and draco which you're gonna get fucking draco later and i love jenny and neville so much i think that they're wonderful in the book and i think adding them to the scene like you said during the book discussion, is such a great point. Having them not in the movie is kind of sad, but I'm also fine with it. Yeah, I guess it's one of those little things to cut in terms of chaos. Mm -hmm. Oh, really quick, before we move on past Dementor land, um, two other things I wanted to mention that I actually didn't get to in any of our past conversations. So I meant to mention this, I think in the last episode, but while we're still in the leaky cauldron at the beginning of this one, there is a wizard who is using magic without a wand. He's stirring his coffee with a spoon and his fingers are doing it. And I want to be like, what level is that motherfucker at? How is he able to do that? I really, really love that little insertion. Even though I love that. It raises some questions, which I also kind of like. The other thing is Crookshanks is out of the crate and... In the book, Hermione purposefully lets out Crookshanks. Mm -hmm. There isn't that chasing moment between the rat. The rat. (laughs) I mean, yeah, he's a rat. He's a fucking rat. Literally. But Crookshanks isn't going after Scabbers as much as in the book. 
And that, I think, is also, like, a filming thing. Like, I assume that neither of those animals are actually real animals. But, I mean, maybe Crookshanks is. Crookshanks is so cute. Yes. Crookshanks is the tits. But I did want to bring that up. And the way in the book that Hermione lets Crookshanks out of his carrier, I think is a little bit rude. (laughs) Like, (laughs) it from, from Ron's perspective... And not knowing what Scabbers is. And knowing that Ron is bothered by Crookshanks being let out. And that Crookshanks is going after Scabbers. Really, Hermione? Mm-hmm. In hindsight, yes, I appreciate it. But, like, in the moment, it's like, mm. I really love David Thewlis. I think he's wonderful as Lupin. I think that that scene is filmed in a way that it looks like he's literally waiting for this opportunity. A little bit, yeah. It's a little weird. Um, also, no, the Dementor is terrifying. The Dementor is a really good piece it's of ter- technology. But it's also kind of a weird contrast because it has the thing where it's, like, pulling at, at Harry's face, which I'm not sure how I feel about it. yeah. Because I think that it, it implies that the Dementor is trying to suck out his soul, and that's not what the book is saying. Yeah. I mean, it does kind of go back to my little comment earlier about it being like the chunk of Voldemort in his forehead, but it is definitely different from the book. I, th- I just, I, I, to me, I'm like annoyed by it. But it does look cool. So then we have the beautiful scene with them going into Hogwarts with the Thestrals. I even forgot about that little, like, clip because it's a transition thing in the movie, but it's important. And the music in the background going through the Great Hall and you see the Frog Choir is one of my favorite. I love the Frog Choir. And then they part and they reveal New Dumbledore. It's amazing. Okay, so how do you feel about New Dumbledore? I mean, I like him. I think I will always prefer Richard Harris because I feel like he matches the book a little bit more. He's a little bit more soft-spoken. It's hard for me just to say flat out that I dislike him because I really like that role overall, but I prefer Richard Harris. So I'm trying to take this, since we're trying to do the movie one chapter at a time, I'm trying to take this one chapter at a time and give Michael Gambon the the benefit of the doubt because we're going to shit all over him at the end of this book and then the next movie. Yeah. So in literally the same 15 seconds, you get um, New Flitwick, who is not a new actor. It's literally they took... Warwick Davis. Warwick Davis. So they have Warwick Davis. It's the same actor who played him in the first two movies, but they completely changed what he looks like. And I think I said this before that I actually like Blitwick not looking like a frail wisp of a wizard. But in the same, like, 15 seconds, they show Warwick Davis as Flitwick in a new light. And then they show Dumbledore. And, yeah, like you said, I love the uh, the separation of the fire. And there he is. I think this is a scene where Michael Gambon is a good Dumbledore. Yeah, he says that amazing quote. It's, it's literally right in front of me in my library. Happiness can be found... Even in the darkest of times, if one only remembers charmed lights. Which is not a quote from the book. It's it only not. from the movie. And I also have that hanging in the kitchen, too. So that quote I have all over the place. Well, this movie is fucking great because it gave us this quote. Yes. But I'm glad that you bring that up because I mentioned Flitwick Disorder last episode with Tom the Innkeeper. But we have it with Flitwick. We have a different actor playing Dumbledore. Also, see it with the fat lady who comes up shortly. And let me tell you something. I like this switch. Uh, no offense, original fat lady, but Don French is a Quen beyond Quen. <laughs> I 
fucking love her. The other person, and she hasn't gotten Flitwick disorder yet, but is Lavender Brown, who we see a lot in this scene and the next chapter too. She changes races and everything. So that's interesting as well. Terrible choice. Yeah. A couple other things I noticed in terms of characters in this scene, I'm sure it wasn't, but it looked like Jay Finch was at the Gryffindor table. It might have been someone who looked just like him, or maybe it really was Hufflepuff and they're real I didn't notice red. that. I'm going to go back and watch that. Yeah, it looked like Jay Finch's actor, but I may be mistaken. And actually, because of Puffs, I tried to look in the Frog Choir, and I was like, wait a minute, is that Susan Bones? Like <laughs> I tried to like see who, if there was anyone that we could recognize that was actually in the frog choir. For a second, I thought Dean Thomas was in there, but I don't think it was him either. And then, of course, the little moment between Snape and Lupin. Snape looks just normal Snapey to me, honestly. He <laughs> yeah, he really is very Snapey. Yeah, he does his, like, polite little clap for, like, a second. But then it's just, like, there's not as much focus on them. And also, Lupin and Snape are sitting right next to each other. <laughs> How do you feel that they did with this chapter? I personally think that they did pretty damn well. We, of course, do not get that little moment in the office with Pomfrey mm -hmm. and McGuh. I don't really think it's completely necessary, to be honest. I love seeing them, but I'm cool with that being cut. But otherwise, I truly do think that they did a great job with this chapter. I like this chapter. I think yeah. they did a nice job, too. So let's get into some points. We are encountering more and more characters, so there's going to be a lot more point exchanges. Let's start with positive points. I'm giving plus five to Molly and Arthur. I know that I gave them some partial points for this part two, because I do like that interaction with Arthur. But in the book, they continue to be very, very supportive of Harry, the way that they usher him through the wall. Like you said, the, the fact that Molly kind of like kisses everybody goodbye. So plus five to both of them again. Plus five to Ginny and Neville for joining them in the compartment during the whole Dementor situation. I liked that little nod to the Gold and Silver trio later on in the series. And also plus five to the fat lady because fuck yes, Don French. You're going to get more points later, probably, because you're John French and you deserve everything. Plus 10 to Quinn Pomfrey because she's there. <laughs> I felt like I had to give her points because I keep bringing her up during your winner loser. So <laughs> we love her and she deserves points, of course. So plus 10 to her and plus 20 to our two new professors. Plus 20 to Lupin because he is a beloved professor. I'm really, really excited to get more into him. And he also saves the day as being the adult in the situation. And plus 20 to Hagrid for somewhat of the same reason. But I think he bounced back from last book by becoming a professor. And I'm proud of Hagrid, even though he is a little bit haphazard. And I appreciate how you said that in your summary at the beginning of this episode about like, oh, I'm sure nothing bad will happen. And nothing truly does, because what happens in the next chapter is pretty amazing. And then... Okay, I love that you gave Hagrid all those points. Oh, of course. He's so happy. We love Hagrid here at the Basic Snitches Comic He's the fucking greatest, sweetest yeah. guy. So those are all the points that I'm giving. I am taking points away from two groups of people. 
I mean, the first one is I'm only taking five away from Draco because it's pretty just normal Draco. It's him just trying to come in and cause shit, which we know he does. And he doesn't because there's a professor there. But Draco's there and we hate him. So negative five. And negative 20 from the Ministry of Magic. Because the way that I kind of see the sheets with teeth is that they're just kind of programmed in a way to react to certain things, whether it's despair or evil or something, you know? I don't think that they have a lot of a capacity to really realize right versus wrong, which is probably an issue with using them in the first place. Truly, I think it's the Ministry of Magic who is forcing the Dementors to go out to the Hogwarts Express and Hogwarts and cause all the mayhem that they do so that's why i'm taking 20 away from the ministry of magic to recap plus five to molly arthur Ginny, neville and the fat lady plus 10 to queen pomfrey plus 20 to lupin and hagrid negative five from draco malfoy and negative 20 from the ministry of magic so that was our first remote episode i hope y'all enjoyed that yeah i'm sure that the next couple will also be remote but i'll look forward to when we can be together yeah i mean this is a way to do it it's perfectly fine and like we're social distancing we hope all of you are and if you're not get the fuck home and take care of yourself stopping out yeah people yeah this will all change soon and we'll all be able to go out and see each other again but it's important that we all do our part and stay calm and safe and healthy and don't panic easy to do that during these times the best thing that you can do is just kind of be focused on the now and uh the hope and gratitude and wash your hands so that's enough for my heartwarming lesson thanks i'm gonna get a refill of wine i have had an entire bottle of wine now well she's ahead of me so and y'all know how she gets when she gets wasted so and she doesn't have to drive anywhere today so this next episode is going to be a s-h-i-t show And that's we are going to be discussing talons and tea leaves. Chapter six. And y'all know that I'm excited for this one. I've been waiting for Adam to have this episode for like years. Oh yeah, we're here, bitches. Uh, Well, we're not. You guys have to wait a week, but we're going to record that right now. All right. Well, tune in next time. Bye. Bye. Wow, that, that was shrill. Basic Snitches is produced and recorded by Adam Bowers and Tara Corkery. Edited by Adam Bowers. And published by Tara Corkery via Podbean. And now available for download wherever you listen to podcasts. A special thanks to all of you for taking the time to download and listen to us. We hope you enjoyed us. If you enjoyed us, please be sure to rate us five stars on your listening app of choice. And if you didn't enjoy us, then we're sorry you're so angry. Please also connect with us. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Basic Snitches or email us at basicsnitches at gmail.com. We're excited to get more feedback from our listeners and to hear what you have to say about the questions and discussions we have on the podcast. Catch Catch you later, snitches. snitches!